0: you deserve better than your bank better service better rates better solutions if you live or work in cobb county now is the perfect time to make the switch to the credit union of georgia the better way to bank since 1960 credit union of georgia has been providing northwest georgia with financial solutions that make sense for your home business and family as a homegrown not-for-profit cooperative our members are our mission Not only will you get the best loan rates, you'll get personalized customer service from people who understand your needs. Plus, Credit Union of Georgia provides real convenience with a network of more than 30,000 accessible ATMs and branch locations across the country. Of course, there's also five locations right here in Cobb County. Ready to see how much better your banking can be with Credit Union of Georgia? Become a member today or apply for a loan online by visiting www.cuofga.org. Credit Union of Georgia, the better way to bank. Welcome to the Marietta Daily Journal podcast. I'm Dan Ratcliffe. During the week, you'll get the local news for Marietta, Kennesaw, Smyrna, and all of Cobb County right here. And on Sundays, like today, you'll find the Cobb Life Sunday podcast, where we talk to newsmakers, local celebrities, and people making a difference right here in our community.
1: It is Cobb Life, presented by the Marietta Daily Journal. I'm Brian Giffen, and it's Sunday, and we're back with another edition of Cobb Life. Today, we change it up a little bit and do something a little bit different. We'll visit with a name almost all of you know, and As importantly, a voice most of you have heard. It is radio broadcaster Jim Powell of the Atlanta Braves Radio Network, a guy I've known for more than 20 years and spent eight years working with. Jim, it's the off-season. I remember off-seasons quite fondly. It's a time for you to regroup, spend some time with your family, and not be as engaged in the rat race, though you haven't been as much the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, it's still. An off-season is fantastic. And by the way, I'm confused a little bit. Should I call you? Hey Brian, or should I say, excuse me, Mister Giffen, or should I just call you Grandma?
1: Oh man, just call me whatever you want. I'm going to date myself. Just don't call me Collect. (laughs) (laughs) You and I have known each. You know, we go back what 22, 23 years. I think I met you when Indianapolis, where I was working, was affiliated with Milwaukee, and you spent many years in Milwaukee. It's a little bit the opposite of a lot of folks where they end up succeeding in life, and then they come to Atlanta you know, and move here. That's kind of what I did. And you're a guy who grew up in Atlanta, you know, banged around the minor leagues. And when you got your big league opportunity, it actually was way up north in Minnesota, not unlike me. But then you landed in Milwaukee and were there a number of years. It was really like a second home to you.
2: It was. That was right when we were having our first children. Our first baby was born right before I went to spring training with the Brewers in columbia south carolina is where she was born the other children were born in milwaukee we loved it there it was a great place to raise a family my wife loved it as well as i did otherwise if she would hated it then i would have had to hate it too so <laughs> that's
1: you know funny how that how works, works. Uh, <laughs> no doubt
2: but, uh, no we loved milwaukee we had a lot of great years it was a great place to get our kids two feet on the ground start to their education and acclimation to this world and uh, we still go back to milwaukee regularly we have a lot of friends up there and I couldn't be more grateful for that experience.
1: You know, I love the South here, Jim, and obviously the weather and the winter and all that stuff. But I got to tell you, there is a certain down-home quality and down-to-earth, mellow element in the Midwest that when you live there, I think you understand that a little bit better.
2: You know, in Milwaukee, the way we looked at it was because we had a lot of the exact same friends when we left Milwaukee that we had when we first got there. I mean, unlike Atlanta, and I love Atlanta. I was born and raised here. I lived in Roswell as a kid, went to Roswell High School. I was just outside of Cobb County. I could just about throw a rock into the Cobb County school system, but I can't say enough great things about Atlanta either. We still reside here now, and our kids have been schooled here uh, through uh, high school and and now into college. But in Milwaukee, it was just a little different. Obviously, Atlanta is a bit of a transient town. A lot of people move in for a great opportunity, and then that launches them onto New York or LA or Chicago or some other market because of their success in Atlanta. Whereas in Milwaukee, people had a tendency to, you know, the weather was bad enough where if you didn't really love Milwaukee, you (laughs) didn't put down roots, you packed your car and you drove south. right And so the people that didn't do that, that stayed behind, they cherished the roots that they were putting down. The fact that they would have friends for a long period of time because We all wanted to be a part of that community together. So it was a different experience, but it was great in many ways for our our children and our family, as good as it could have been.
1: I can't talk about Milwaukee very long without going to Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre, who recently celebrated, I believe his 85th birthday, is that correct? 85th birthday.
2: He asked me not to keep track of that a bit some okay. time
1: ago. Now, that's one stat. You know, in the age we're in, I'm surprised there's not a saber metric for that now. like right. Like trips around the planet or trips around the sun, right, or something like that. Can you talk a little about your relationship with Bob over the years? Obviously, you know, in the years I worked with you, I, I would see the two of you interact. And you told me countless Bob Euchre stories that... Maybe we wouldn't repeat here, and I mean that in a humorous way. Can you share a couple that you can repeat here?
2: Well, first of all, I got to say, you know, that was my first full-time major league job. I had been with the Twins for a couple of years on more of a fill-in basis, although that was a great experience also. But, you know, being interviewed by Euchre among, you know, the other uh, Milwaukee uh, management folks, and then when it was cemented that I was going to be his partner, you know, going to dinner with him, And then when we started to work games together in that first spring training, uh, before we got started, he said, look, what you have to know about me is I don't give a darn (laughs) about whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say, however you want to do it is fine with me. You do what you think is best, and I'm never going to tell you how to broadcast. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here every day to have a great time, and that's all I care about. We're here to have fun. It's baseball games. Let's have a great time. And for the next 13 years, that's exactly what we did. We had an absolute blast. I learned a lot from him, whether he wanted to teach me or not. And, um, yeah, he's the funniest man on the face of the earth. When I see him break down Johnny Carson in the old uh, TV footage of his appearances on the Johnny Carson show, Johnny Carson was the greatest deadpan comedian of all time until he met Bucher. And he had met not only his match— but a man who was better at it than even he was. Yeah, a rollicking good time, an experience I'll never forget, and Bob and I remain close friends to this day.
1: Are there some stories or a couple of instances that stand out to you where something in particular that was just hilariously funny, so many things, and you know this as well or better than me, that in a baseball booth so many little things happen kind of away from the mics, and obviously I'm not asking you for any inside baseball, no pun intended, it's more a matter of, do you remember a specific instance where something hilarious kind of sprung out of nothing?
2: Well, I, I remember thousands of them.
1: Right. I <laughs> Bob figured. was
2: famous for making humor explode out of absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget the just the bus rides from the hotel to the stadiums on the road. And it would just be me and Kent Sommerfeld, our producer engineer, and the traveling secretary and you. And there's no audience there to perform to. So you would think Bob would just relax and not say anything. Right. But it did not matter whether his audience was one or a million. He just – it's like he was born to entertain people. And one of the things that he would do so successfully, and it was really – I mean, I, I did tell him on more than one occasion, I know you made a deal with the devil. There is no way you can insult people of the, with these <laughs> massive jobs like on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, governors of states, mayors, uh, all kinds of politicians fabulously wealthy hedge fund managers, team owners, and they would walk in the booth and he would begin to humiliate them to their face and with their entourage behind them. And the more he did it, the more they laughed and loved him. So <laughs> I'm like, you had to make a deal with the devil. There's no way this makes any sense. But he just had a way with people where he could needle them and push them and embarrass them. And they just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And there are a million stories like that.
1: Well, that is a gift. You know, one of the ones that cracked me up, and obviously I won't mention any names or anything, but a story you told me once about your banter off air is different than your banter on air. And the mics weren't muted in the building and he made a crack about something and then later just peddled his way right on out of it.
2: Yeah, there was there was one guy in the front office at one point that made himself an easy target with the way he carried himself. And of course, (laughs) I'm still gonna anybody that's in the front office is you know, is golden to me. I'm going to treat them like like they should be treated. But Bob just treated people the way they earned to be treated, so to speak. And there was one day where we inadvertently, our our microphones from a spring training game were being broadcast throughout the spring training facility, including the private offices. And he made a couple of snide comments about a certain individual. And then after the game, we we had no idea that it was going out like that. We didn't know until after the game. And we walked into the clubhouse and and somebody walked up to Bob and said, we heard everything you said about X, Y, Z, and you said this and you said that. And I'm over there and I'm like crumpling into the ground in the corner because my career is over just being associated with it. And Bob says, you think we didn't know that? (laughs) Spirit is busting his chops. Come on. (laughs) And just kept walking and laughing and no one ever said anything else about it again, including the person
1: involved. That is gold. <laughs> and, you know, as somebody who, you remember how I meticulously ran those mute buttons when you guys were in commercial breaks. And, see, I had the privilege of working with you who had been through that, but I also was in Minnesota myself when the famous Bert Blylevin gaffe happened. And even though that didn't happen on radio, it immediately re- necessitated the need for up there not only mute buttons but a red light in the booth that said your mics were hot. Pretty funny.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Very helpful.
1: Recent news, of course, a, a colleague, and that is a guy that gets to go do what you've gotten to do. This being Chip Carey, who leaves the TV booth and he goes back to his hometown in St. Louis. You and I both know what a fantastic setting and a great baseball atmosphere, as good as there is in the game St. Louis is. And it's got to mean a lot to him the fact that, you know, this is a guy we both know really well, but he gets to go home in a lot of ways.
2: Yes. I mean, he did spend a lot of years in Atlanta. You know, obviously Skip was stationed here for a long time and their family didn't always live in Atlanta. And Chip is really from St. Louis. Right. And I, I really got a better feel for his affection for that market, you know, as I traveled with him and we would go to St. Louis and how special it was. And he still has family there. And of course, Harry was a cardinal legend and icon. And he's kind of a Midwestern guy himself. He spent right. a lot of time in Chicago, St. Louis. So. Good for Chip. I mean, I'm really happy for him. I hope that this is the last move he ever makes and that he has a long, very great run in St. Louis. They've got a tremendous broadcasting tradition with names that go from you know, when we were kids to today. And there's going to be some pressure on him to fit into all that because he's joining a select group of broadcasters who have sort of mastered that market. But good for him, good for his family, and I couldn't be happier for him.
1: You can relate to this. A lot of people think that when you when you work in Major League Baseball and you're in the traveling sense and obviously, you know, it varies role to role what it is you're doing. But in the course of a season, you're grinding, especially if you don't have the luxury of getting much in the way of time off. And even when you do, you still go long stretches where you're essentially working every day. And you know how it is. You spend more time really with your crew than you do your family. During the season, uh, about seven months out of the year, maybe a little bit more in some cases, depending on how much spring stuff you do. But this is one of those little inside funny things that one day on a bus, I remember Chip getting on the bus and we were all tired. You know how it is. It's hot. It's the middle of July somewhere. I'm probably in St. Louis. I don't know. But I learned that the only person who impersonated Chip's dad, Skip, better than Rich Eisen back in his ESPN days was Chip himself. I'll leave out some of the words, but he's just wandering down the hall. Everybody on there is dog-tired. You're ready to get to the next city. You're hot. Everybody's wearing sport coats, even though it's the middle of the summer. And he's like, I don't understand why my tanker is not already on my chair. (laughs) And that impression of his dad, just one of those little moments that happens during the course of a season and, you know, the traveling situation that... It's funny, when you're out of it, you kind of cherish those things, that interaction, those fun things, those those goofy little things that happen on airplanes and buses and stuff around the game.
0: Yeah,
2: you may you may not miss uh, the, those 5 a.m. arrivals yeah. where you uh, <laughs> get caught in behind the school buses trying to get home after being gone for a week and a half on the West Coast. No but, doubt. Yeah, it's amazing the things that happen. And that's where the legend of Jean-Jacques Smythe was born in Milwaukee, where bob one of the ways he would entertain us when we were in toronto is on the bus rides to the stadium he'd be looking at the signs of you know there's all all kinds of french canadian signs and french words and all that and he would just do this funny canadian accent and make up use a word that's on a billboard and then make up in, (laughs) in pure straight english what he thought of that and you know turn it into a funny little bit and then he'd go on to the next word that he sees on the next billboard Well. We had a daily pregame show where one of our features was to have a guest on. And so I said, one of these days, he was just killing it on the bus with, <laughs> with all the Jean, all what would later become known as Jean-Jacques Smythe material. And I said, hey, just for fun, won't we'll air anything. But how about let me interview you and let's do an interview where you're in that character. And he's like, OK, it's not going to air, right? I said, yep. And so we did this interview where I interviewed this French-Canadian journalist that I made up on the spot. His name was Jean-Jacques Smythe. Renowned French Canadian journalist, and I started asking him questions. You know, just innocuous questions about baseball and <laughs> Canada, and what's it, what's it like, and how do you like the stadium? And he just began to, in this voice, he would just rip everyone. He ripped the stadium. He ripped the people. He ripped the, the team. He ripped the the traffic. He ripped the hotel. And then when he got tired of all that, he started ripping that fake American announcer that comes with the Brewers, Bob Uecker, and he went on, proceeded (laughs) to just tear Bob Uecker apart limb from limb as Jean-Jacques Smythe to the point where they were getting calls back at our flagship station, people irate that their hero was being destroyed by this French-Canadian journalist, how dare him, and anyway, we ended up going ahead and airing the interview anyway, Oh my I had to talk him into it. But we aired him, and then from there on out, whenever we went to Toronto, John Jack Smythe was our first guest at the first game.
1: See, and that's the funny kind of stuff. Obviously, people do hear some of it on radio. Let's talk a little bit about Don. Don Sutton, you, of course, began working with Don in 2009, and you guys were still together when I left there after the 2017 season. So you worked with Don for a long time. I don't have to tell you, we talked about it earlier, kind of what a grind it is. And look, I had it happen to me when I was with Indianapolis, when I was at Peninsula. When you sort of are in that grind and you work every day and it's hot and all that stuff and you're tired and you're grinding and you got a suitcase full of dirty clothes and still four days to go, things like that, you don't always have the best rapport in the booth. But you and Don had a great chemistry On air, And I think true professionals are able to to truly kind of grasp when the light goes on. And that doesn't mean you guys weren't friends and didn't get along well, because you did. But anybody that understands the travel in baseball knows that, you know, that you have your angst moments just because of the nature of the job and the schedule that you keep.
2: No, no doubt. I think chemistry is the right word. Don and I had great chemistry from the beginning. I was grateful I had done 13 years with Bob Eucher, learning a lot about the game from the catcher's perspective, which was very, very interesting. Right. And then when I was partnered with Don Sutton, I got a chance to learn baseball from the standpoint and viewpoint of a pitcher, which was diametrically opposed to a hitter and a catcher at times. So I feel like I got a great baseball education between you and Don. Don told great stories. We had fun. He wasn't afraid to be folksy and down-to-earth. And, you know, he was not like a high-and-mighty guy, even though he was a a Hall of Famer. So that was a great pairing. People really – loved when don and i had our run together i I miss him now it was a partnership that was difficult if not impossible to replace
1: yeah no doubt these were great i mean whether it was you getting an email somebody tweeting at you or when we had that text to the game feature it would come from some small town somewhere in the middle of somewhere nowhere and don would have this rapport with the crowd where oh yeah go there they have the you know the whatever-it-is parade on July the 3rd every year. They, they go to Marie's Cafe, and he would basically t- he would take these towns and he would Wikipedia and go look up stuff, and on the fly, sound like he was from there and had been there his whole life. It was hilarious.
2: You know, it was not only hilarious, it was ingenious. I mean, it, <laughs> the Atlanta Braves Radio Network's the largest in all of professional sports, and it's mainly sprawled across uh, the southeast and a lot of small towns, a lot of country towns. They were all Braves fans. And so by Don taking the time prior to the game to find out what town we were going to feature, or what text we were going to use and from where it was, and then he would do research so that he could, you know, lay a finger on that town and make it something that's more than a town we've never heard of and make the people in that town love him. But that that doesn't increase your audience. By extension, everybody who would hear him talking about that little time and that little town in Poda, Tennessee, they all felt like he was also talking about their town. And it was a great way to connect with our audience.
1: I feel like to some degree I kind of was caddying for him for a number of years, if you know what I mean. I mean, Don, let's face it, he was he was baseball royalty. I loved it and used to laugh my head off in the back of the booth when you would always say, Hey, between us we've got three hundred and twenty four wins. Was, yeah, technically that's three of us. <laughs>
2: That's true, yes, and that was undeniable fact that I'm not sure he really liked me pointing out, but uh, I did it to have a little fun with him. You know, he, Don. you could bust Don's chops to a certain point, point. Right. on certain days were probably you weren't going to, but on the days when he was in the right mood, we had a lot of fun with that.
1: No doubt about it, and I say it with the utmost fondness when I say, you know, he was a complex individual, a guy that had accomplished a lot, and I remember that when I talk about caddying for him, gosh, Jim, you remember I would patch him up with a first aid kit and uh, his pitching piece that we did in the pregame. Show. I would largely script a summary of each starting pitcher so he'd have a, a real source point to work off of. And you remember it was because of expedience. I had to get this to the studios by a certain time. So I ended up helping him a lot. But he definitely had his moments where... He could be the most affable fun guy in the world to be around. and he had other times where, you know maybe internally things were bothering him a lot, and he, of course battled illness for a long time. Definitely a complex guy to work with, and one that I'm glad I had the opportunity to get to experience.
2: Well, you know, it, it, like you and me, but especially Don, who'd been around a lot longer, he spanned the eras of baseball. and baseball has changed a lot from the time when he was breaking in as a player and even breaking in as a broadcaster and then through the time to the end of his broadcasting career where, you know, the travel was different, the way people were treated were different, lots and lots of things that had changed in baseball that it was hard for somebody who knew the way it used to be to get used to the way it was now.
1: There were so many people over those years. You had the opportunity to work with Bobby Cox his last couple of years. I was fortunate that my first year was his last. What are your best memories of the skipper?
2: You know, Bobby Cox treated me like a son from the day I walked in. And I was a nobody from, I mean, yes, I was from Atlanta, but that didn't matter to anybody that was in the locker room and the clubhouse, that team had had so much success. And I came wandering in and I was treated really because of Bobby. Clubhouse wide, I was treated great, like I'd been there through all of the great times. And Bobby himself, uh, I learned a lot of baseball from him. I really appreciate, that's one of the great things in my career is I got to spend a lot of time around but I think is the greatest manager in the history of the game and one of the great people in the history of the game. And I hate what's happened with Bobby after the stroke. He's It's uh, just terrible the way yeah. his, his latter stage of his life is having to be spent. And I pray for him a lot, he and his family, um, because he definitely deserves a, a better going out party than that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. A
2: fantastic
1: guy. My greatest memory was in that first year. That was his last. And that was the night that the Giants won that playoff series at Turner Field and. In- stopped their celebration to applaud the skipper as as he came out and took a curtain call. That was one of the greatest events, at, be it as a broadcaster, be it as an engineer, be it as a producer, whatever, being a baseball fan, to actually be there in person. For. You know, the heck with that, just being a human
2: being. It is probably number one on my list of things that I've witnessed in baseball. The fact that the Giants had won, I mean, the Braves had had this magical year where they'd found ways to pull out game after game. Their t-shirts, win it for Bobby and all that stuff. And It just felt like this was a team of destiny that was going to throw Bobby Cox on its shoulders and carry him off to glory. And somehow the Giants stunned the Braves to win that playoff series. And we all, I could barely talk on the air. I was so stunned that they had lost. I just didn't see that coming, which in sports you expect losses. But I didn't expect that. And Bobby slowly came out of the dugout as the Giants were celebrating. And once they realized what was going on, you're right. They just canceled their celebration on the field. They have turned and applauded Bobby and they turned that whole moment over to Bobby Cox away from their great upset victory as a team uh, before they went on back to the clubhouse and they finished their celebration in private where it wouldn't interfere with anything going on with Bobby. It was the classiest thing I've ever seen. Um, The Giants are a great organization. I have a tremendous amount of admiration for them. They've been very classy for a long time.
1: Yeah, I don't think you could have said that any better. That was a special moment. Let's talk about his successor for a couple minutes here, Freddy Gonzalez. And obviously, you know, Freddie had some success there, won a division as well. He kind of got caught up in the end of the Frank Wren era, so to speak. And, you know, you have to have the right kind of tools to go in and do any kind of job. And personnel-wise, the cupboards were not only not well-stocked in some areas in terms of, you know, maybe some veterans long in the tooth, this and that, but also a farm system that was pretty barren. And honestly, some of my funniest baseball memories are <laughs> pieces you would do with Freddie prior to the game, and it was outtake stuff, stuff we'd never used, stuff. He knew he could trust me, so I loved the fact that he would say something that he obviously didn't want to hear. On the recording, he said, Brian, fix that one. Brian, fix that one. Yeah, no,
2: he had a great sense of humor and kept it throughout most of his tenure. Um, as you have already alluded to, it, it was, you know, there were some, pressure times and tough times for Freddie. He did the best job that he could. I enjoyed working with him a lot. You know, that was when the Braves, yeah, the farm system was starting to go down, and it was a bit before it was going to be rebuilt. So, you know, he didn't get quite the uh, the personnel list that Brian Snitker ultimately got after earning it with his uh, tremendous career in the minor leagues and, you know, a rebuilt front office and now all the glory, including world championships, and now a new, brand new contract for him as well for a guy that I thought you know might be figuring, yeah, you know what, I've done enough. I might retire even a few years ago, but that team has kept his baseball juices flowing and we're all the beneficiaries.
1: I was going to go there next. Honestly, I'm going to quote the great Bum Phillips here. Where it comes to being a great guy, he may not be in a class by himself, but as Bum Phillips once eloquently put it, it don't take long to call the roll.
2: Yeah, Brian is just a genuine guy. And there are no airs about him. Even as a long time now very successful manager of the Atlanta Braves, you never get the feeling that he thinks he's something. I, I think he just is in many ways like a kid bewildered at the great things that have happened to him. And, I mean, to me, you've got <laughs> yeah. Bum Phillips. I'll just use the, the old adage that good things happen to good people. Yeah. And Brian Snicker, wife Ronnie, his whole extended family – great family, great people, and great things have happened to him, and it it, uh, restores in many ways uh, my faith in mankind that something like that happens to a person like that.
1: Having a team love to play for a guy to the extent where they will run through a wall for a guy isn't something you can measure with metrics. That is a character thing, and that is a team melding thing. Bobby Cox had that for a number of years, and that's what Brian Smith, and obviously he was a Bobby Cox disciple. He worked with him for a long, long time. The current management
2: setup with Alex Anthopoulos and Brian Snitker is, boy, it's, it's a stroke of genius. It really is because we in the last few years, we've watched baseball be sort of a having an, an inner war about how to construct baseball teams, how to approach the game, how to find a way to generate success in today's baseball with today's kids that aren't the same as the kids for 20 years ago or 40 years ago. But Alex Anthopoulos got that great education in his upbringing both coming up on the scouting side then eventually going to what I call his finishing school, going to the Dodgers. They were number one in analytics at that time at the, at the cutting edge. So he actually understood both sides, the analytics side, the stats and all that, and then the scouting side as well and took the information from both and combined them to inform his manager and the coaching staff and the players and let them decide then what worked for them. They, they didn't force all, all that down everybody's throat. And Brian Snitker is the main reason for that, because Brian is that buffer between the front office, the baseball operations side, and the baseball team itself. And he, along with Alex, have found a way to find that happy medium where they get the best information and prepare the team in the best way without seeming like they're jamming it down their throats. And I believe that's a huge reason why they have the chemistry and the on-field success that they've enjoyed.
1: We're visiting with Braves broadcaster Jim Powell here on Cobb Life. We'll continue our discussion with Jim. Right here, we step out for a break, though. This is Cobb Life from the Marietta Daily Journal. I'm Brian Giffen with the BG Ad Group, and we're back with more Cobb Life right after this. Engineered Solutions of Georgia We guarantee a stable drive foundation
2: With over 30 years of experience And a lifetime of support Residential and Hey, we do it
1: In Georgia, the weather never ceases to do unpredictable things. Peace of mind should be top of mind where it comes to your heating and cooling system. Daco Systems has three generations of experience with HVAC excellence they've shared with Cobb County and the greater metro Atlanta area. Daco Systems has been family owned and operated since they started out, and Dean Yarrington has built their business into what it is today through policies of honesty, responsiveness, and attention to the needs of customers. The Daco Systems team is equipped with the knowledge, tools, products, and over four decades of experience that help them get each job done right the first time, and they back that up with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Along with exceptional service, Deco Systems provides free estimates on new heating and AC installations, and you can reach them after hours when you have an HVAC emergency. Get peace of mind. Call Deco Systems today at 770 209 2261 or visit them online at DecoSystems.com. Deco Systems, a premier train comfort specialist. And we're back on Cobb Life from the Marietta Daily Journal. I'm Brian Giffen with the BG Ad Group. And we're thrilled to have you with us this week as we continue our discussion with Braves broadcaster Jim Powell. I want to talk a couple of quick funny memories, if I may, here. You always had this innate ability to capture, I think, how maybe the fan base and everybody rooting for the team might feel on a particular day. And what I mean is, you know, when we would arrive at a series in Flushing. (laughs) you had this unique way in our little toss that we used to do which is another topic for another time a little opening piece we did every day you would always have this inflection for flushing that the fan base just ate up the text of the game phone would blow up sometimes with flushing (laughs) that was fun stuff that happened on a day-to-day i laughed a lot about that always
2: yeah you know i i grew up in Atlanta, and I grew up listening to Al Ceraldo, Georgia Tech play-by-play man, Larry Munson, I think maybe the greatest radio play-by-play man of all time, certainly by far the greatest I ever heard. And I learned a lot from them. Number one was know your audience. I mean, especially when you're working for a team. It's different if you're a network announcer and you have to call everything down the middle. When you work for a team, you're working for its fan base. I never felt like, and I still don't feel like, I work for the team, the Atlanta Braves. Right. I didn't work for the team, Milwaukee Brewers. I didn't work for the team, the Minnesota Twins. I worked for their fan bases. When you hire me to be your team broadcaster, I'm going to try to connect to our audience. They want to hear the Braves, the Brewers, the Twins do well. They don't really want to hear about how bad things are and all that, although you have to be honest with them or else you lose your own credibility. So you find that I have always was searching for that middle part where I actually called the game exactly as it transpired. I did not sugarcoat things. I didn't make things up. I didn't hide things. But on the other hand, I also understood what our audience wanted. And if they're if we're playing the Mets, the Braves fans don't like the Mets. They hate right. the Mets. If we're playing the Nationals. <laughs> they hate the, the Nats with right. a G. And, you know, and yes – when we would go to New York, it was just an easy thing. I mean, all I was doing was saying where we were. It right, was right. in Flushing, New York. Welcome back to Flushing, New York. And here we go with the Braves against the Mets. And people did love that because if you hate the Mets, the fact that they live in Flushing, couldn't right. be you couldn't even script that. It's too good to be true. So all I did was they opened up the hole, and I just walked through it.
1: I remember one night you guys having so much fun with it. And this is great because these stories around a game like baseball with its pace kind of spawn themselves. The winds are swirling here and <laughs> flushing and it just went on and on. <laughs> and we had so we laughed so hard in the booth, it's just insane.
2: There's no shortage of material once you get to flushing.
1: <laughs> no doubt about it. You know, a couple other quick favorite moments, I think, were we had a guy that traveled for one year. He worked there one season and they did an interview with somebody, and this guy wanted demo material. You understand that as a broadcaster that's up and coming, but he was bugging me and bugging me and bugging me that he wanted this interview. And of course, I've got my hands full producing games every day for, you know, 225 radio stations and all that stuff, a lot going on. So I took the interview finally because he started ticking me off and made all of his questions sound like he had inhaled helium, but left the player answers the same. And I sent it back to him and You and I had a lot of laughs over that over the years. Of course, that it would never air anywhere.
2: Well, it was both funny and it was also a nice little uh, life lesson for the prospective broadcaster that, (laughs) yeah, I think he learned a little lesson on that one.
1: One of the things I admired the most, you know, you always let the game speak. You didn't show up with canned cliches. Everybody has their typical way of saying stuff, and you have your phrases that develop in your style of calling games. But you always let the game speak for itself. Last funny thing was the Jerry Meals, the umpire situations quickly. Remember the night they appealed down to Jerry Meals and they want him to make the call and he's asleep at the switch and our effects mics pick up the, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> he's not even <laughs> paying attention and he's got to make the call.
2: I know. <laughs> there are a lot of things that go into, especially more so back a few years ago. Today, they've cleaned up a lot of that because right. the technology right.
1: improves. And, you know, but, those guys um, are human yeah. too, man. Don't get me wrong is funny.
2: Well, let's not let's not go that far.
1: Right. Then there was the Sam Holbrook, and that, of course, after the infamous yeah. infield fly that wasn't play.
2: Yeah, you know, I never would have been that hard on Sam, or just reminded people sort of right. uh, tear off the scab whenever I got a chance. Except that Sam never acknowledged that he right. made a terrible call that decided a playoff series, and. You know, acted very arrogant about it. And I didn't like that. And I'm sure none of the Brakes right. fans did either. So from then on, I didn't really say a whole lot about it from then on. But when I ever, you know, whenever it came time to run down the empires on the crew that night and he was there, it was always Sam Holbrook. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then a pause.
2: <laughs> and then on to the next guy. Yep. And I was just trying to convey how disappointed I was in Sam.
1: And the last one, and probably the best one, A.J. Pierzynski, spring training. I don't think it was a game you were there for, but you recall this moment where Joe West, the home plate umpire, were playing at Disney. Joe's from right up the road in Claremont, so he's at and does a lot of these games, and Joe is behind the plate, and Joe's having a tough day. It's the sixth inning. Why in the world is A.J. Perzynski still in there in a spring training game? But he is, and there's a young pitcher on the mound, and that's probably why A.J. was still in there, but Joe's squeezing the pitcher. And you remember this moment where A.J. reaches back for a new ball, and Joe goes to hand him a new ball, and he pulls it down in front of his mask and looks at it, and he hands it back and goes, no, give me another one, one you can see (laughs) <laughs> and he got tossed out AJ. from the crouch uh,
2: yeah aj was is a special guy he's, <laughs> he's got a little prickliness to him right but uh, he's also very funny and of course the braves got joe west really bad one spring training normally the players are supposed to come out from their umpire clubhouse dressed and ready for the game and then when the game's over they go back to their clubhouse before they go get in their cars and head home after the game and joe had had sort of an up and down relationship with bobby and the Braves over the years because he had an up-and-down relationship with pretty much everybody as far as I can tell. (laughs) No doubt. And what Joe would do that the other umpires wouldn't do because it was not part of baseball decorum is when the game was over, he would just pull his mask off his face and walk directly to the fence at Disney in left center field, open the gate and walk because the the parking lot was right behind it, walk directly to his car, get in and drive home. Well, nobody does that, and you're not supposed right. to do that. And it was certainly – there was cat balls about it. And I'm sure he heard about it. He didn't care because he was and is a very arrogant guy. Right. And that's fine. So one day the game ended, and Joe West was up behind the plate. He pulled off – actually, a lot of times what he would do is – you know how they rotate umpires in spring training games. Right. Joe would rotate around until you knew the game was about to end and we weren't going to have any extra innings that day because Joe would be – stationed at either third base or second base,
1: right, closest, closest to the that game. left center
2: field <laughs> gate. And so the game ended, and Joe turned around and pulled his mask off and his hat and started marching to that gate out in left center field, and he got all the way out there. The Braves, unbeknownst to Joe, all stayed in the dugout, all of them. So Joe starts heading out to the left center field fence to go out his gate and get in his car, and unbeknownst to Joe, the Braves didn't retire to their clubhouse. <laughs> they stayed in the dugout. And, of course, spring training, you got like double the size of the team. So the coaches, manager, players, they all stayed right there, and they all just waited and watched Joe as he traipsed out through left center field to that gate. And when he got to the gate, like he always does, he tries to open it up, and it doesn't open. In fact, he doesn't open because it's been double padlocked. There is no possibility of Joe getting out through that gate to go into the parking lot. Not only that, but Joe will end up having to go all the way back across the field to go out through the umpire's clubhouse eventually, and then walk all the way back out to the parking lot (laughs) now to get his car, which once that dawns on him, he begins to get angry. Right. So he grabs that gate and, you know, there's fans that are still trying to get out of the stadium, but they're still in the seating bowl and they're turning around watching. There's the umpire out there and he's standing trying to open a gate in left center field and now he's grabbed the gate and he's shaking it like he's going (laughs) to somehow rip this gate out of the fence so that he can go get in his car. And as soon as he starts doing that, then of course the Braves team erupts and they're just heckling him and giving him all kinds of grief. And it was absolutely one of the funniest things I've ever seen in baseball. Joe, just his face as red as it possibly could be, could not get through that gate, could not get to his car.
1: Baseball in particular, let's face it, it's an evolving story that unfolds daily from the beginning of spring training until the day that you're eliminated or you lift the trophy. Over the course of that, that story changes so much day to day, week to week. Guys have slumps, ups, downs, all the stuff. You always let the game speak. I remember times that you would back out and let the crowd noise alone kind of define the moment. And I think we live in an era now where announcers try to fill every molecule of air with syllables, and they don't always let the game breathe. And I always admired the fact that you do that.
2: You know, it's, it's one of the lessons I learned from Euchre, along with listening to and, and watching so many other great broadcasters in all sports at big moments in their sport, whether it's golf or tennis or football or baseball or basketball, letting the crowd, letting the moment, letting, in the case of video and TV, you let that speak for itself. In the case of radio, you let their imagination – that's the great thing about baseball and the radio is you spur the imagination of the people who are listening to the game. And I think it's personally, you know, style-wise, I feel like it's a great disservice to any audience when you take that away from them and you try and tell them what they should be feeling right then. That's not our job. Right. Our job is to tell them what happened in the game they will decide how they feel about it and whether that's a, a moment of ecstasy or complete despair, that's their decision. And I have no trouble backing out and letting the fans have their say and letting our listening audience have their own imagination dictate how they feel and how they remember that big moment. But for a lot of people, it's, you know, they've got to come up with a lot of them actually write down home run calls and big moment calls and they've got them stashed and ready so they don't have to think and be spontaneous at the time. And, you know, I just don't do it that way. You know, I, I've had some moments where i said things in the moment that other people thought were spot on and that they really enjoyed and that that helped them remember that moment later. But they were never preconceived, never designed by me, never trying to make myself bigger than the moment. Baseball moments in a great sport like that, speak for themselves, right? and if you don't let fans enjoy that and let their imagination become involved, you have done a disservice. You haven't done your job that day.
1: You look back over the course of your career. Are there a couple—this is a tough one because, look, you've been doing this a long time, but— are there a handful of moments that stand out as your favorite moments to have been the guy narrating that moment?
2: You know, I guess the Jason Hayward home run right. I feel like was an incredible moment because of the buildup to Hayward and spring training and he's knocking you know, windshields out in the parking lot at Disney and, and then he gets up there in his first major league bat and just absolutely destroys right. Carlos Zambrano's pitch. And nobody liked Carlos Zembrano on any team except the Cubs or the team that he was on at that time. So it was just an enormous moment. And all I said was, you know, this stadium is upside down. And I didn't say anything else for close to a minute, if not more than a minute. Ronald Acuna's Grand Slam off Bueller, huge. I mean, I let people know it was gone. They knew it was a Grand Slam. And I let them figure out the rest for quite a while. I still remember, and this is how I learned the lesson is, You know, Kurt Gibson's home run. I can't believe what I just saw. Right, right. You know, things, things like that, that they weren't taking over the moment. They weren't talking over the moment. They weren't telling us what we needed to see or feel about it. It just, just the right accent, just a short, put the finger on the moment sentence just to cap it off. But there was nothing better for me than to be able to announce the home run or the huge thing that happened and then lay out for 45 seconds or a minute or until I, decided we had gone far enough it could go longer than that and i and no one in my career 30 years now in major league baseball no one has ever complained to me that i didn't offer enough commentary over the big moments i I just i don't think anybody likes that except the announcers themselves so they can go back and listen to their own highlights
1: i think another one that stands out for me is the night that chipper jones very near the end of his career hit the three-run bomb off Jonathan Papelbon at Turner Field, and that basically about turned it upside down again. That
2: was an incredible moment, and, and one of my favorite calls. Papelbon was another guy that Papelbon— Villain. He was a definite villain. Nobody liked the Phillies. And for Chipper, I knew he was going to beat Papelbon. I didn't know exactly how. Right. But, I mean, it was just so Chipper Jones, that moment was. And— you know, my voice finally, I came very close to squeaking at the end when I said, and the Braves have beaten the Phillies! And I couldn't <laughs> leave out, you know, we all love the home run and the crowd going wild, but oh, by the way, the game was decided also. So I couldn't let that one completely go without putting in a little more information because it's my job also to make sure they know what happened. Yeah, that was one of my favorite moments as a broadcaster for sure.
1: You know, I think a lot of people, and you think about broadcasters, obviously on the higher and more exposed, higher paid levels, you know, the perception is this luxury lifestyle, but you know very well, there's a significant and a tremendous amount of constant work, research, observation away from when you're actually doing your, but the adrenaline rush, the thrill that you get when you're captivated and narrating great moments and telling these stories every day, it's an adrenaline rush that's hard to describe. And I honestly mean that from any level, the lowest to the highest. I
2: completely agree. I mean, there is nothing like the feeling you get in a big moment when you're privileged by describing what happened. And, you know, one of the great lessons I learned in my entire career was from the best director of broadcasting I ever came across, Bill Haig of the Milwaukee Brewers. And one of the things he told me early on was you've got to stay in shape. You've got to work out. You've got to stay healthy because you will need all of your energy. 162 games is a lot of baseball. You're right, Brian. It's not just the three-hour game. In fact, when I spoke in, it was a -a two-and-a-half-hour game. Now it's a four (laughs) or four-and-a-half-hour game, and it's twenty-four-seven. I mean, from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep that night, home or road, you're all about getting ready for that game, digesting that game, finding out what happened in the other games so you're ready for the next day's game, and then you do it all over again. So, I mean, when I'm on the road with a team, I go in the uh, hotel gym every single day, and it's not – you can take one look at me and say it's, it's obviously not because I'm bodybuilding, <laughs> but it's it's about being healthy and being ready for the big moments. It it is it, it takes a physical and a mental toll, and that's why the off season is you know the last day of the regular season when if you're unless your team is going to the playoffs, we call it Pick Your Own Friends Day. It's coming up <laughs> right. tomorrow, right? Which means the, the there season. There was the mid-season
1: one uh, right before the All-Star break too. Everybody gets right. to pick it's their it's friends All-Star, for four days.
2: That's right. As you alluded to before, it's, it's a great ride and you share so many things with your colleagues of all walks, whether they trainers or traveling secretaries or front office folks or coaches or whatever, broadcasters, etc. But then when the season ends, it's, yeah, tomorrow I get to pick my own friends again. <laughs> and I, I, and you can't wait to see the guys again right. and gals the next spring. Can't wait. If you, you're always excited when spring training comes around because you can go see your friends again. But you spend so much time together, day and night, day, uh, road and home, that by the time the season's over, yeah, you're ready to, uh, in, in my case, I'm ready to watch a little football and think about something besides baseball for a little while. I asked Ben Scully one time, Brian, if he watches the World Series when the Dodgers don't make the World Series or if he's not working a network game. And he says, ha, never, huh. never watch the postseason. If my team's not in it, I don't watch it. I take my time off, and it becomes family time. And I figured if that's good enough for Ben Scully, that should be good enough for anybody.
1: You know, it's a funny thing, and I I guess everybody's affected differently in this way, but for me, in in whatever broadcast realm I've been in, be it as an engineer, a producer, whether I'm calling games or whatever, I I think it kind of cost me. I still love the sport, but I think it kind of cost me a lot of elements that you get with fandom. And what I mean is, you know, when it kind of becomes your job and the grind, and of course you still love the sport and all of those things, but like who your favorite team is, is whatever team you're traveling around with, for instance. And then when you move on from, it kind of happened that way with me at Kennesaw State, too, where once you leave there, you root more for individuals that you know there, that you have your fondness for, but you really are... I'm probably a bigger sports fan, but not of any particular team. Does that make sense? I think moving around, it kind of is like how players do. As free agents, their loyalty moves with them.
2: Well, there's no doubt that there's some of that that goes on. I was very fortunate. The only big move I've had to make in my career was from Milwaukee to Atlanta. That's the only job, and I barely even applied for that job. Right. But it's the only time I've moved from a full-time employment one place to a full-time Employment at another with another team, but that was an easy transition for me because I grew up in Atlanta So I grew up a rabid Braves fan That's where I fell in love with baseball That's where I decided, you know when my parents would tell me I could be anything that I wanted to be if I just set my mind to it Right. I thought about it long and hard as a kid and uh, the manager seemed like That would be great to be a manager of a team But those guys got fired especially in the case of the Braves on a regular basis and I thought about general manager, and that was the same thing. And then I thought about sports writer, and uh, <laughs> you know, you have to—that's like writing a term paper after every game. That doesn't sound like fun. And, and then I thought about the broadcasters, and Ernie, and Pete, and John Sterling, and Milo Hamilton, right? Don, Joe—I mean, I got to listen to so many great ones. Dave O'Brien—they became part of my family. In effect, they didn't know it, but I did. And you could just tell those guys were having a great time. They seemed like they were having great fun every day. And I thought, and they didn't get fired every day. Right. They didn't, you know, they would be with teams for decades. Right. And and I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be one of the team broadcasters, not a network broadcaster, not a broadcaster of all sports. I wanted to be a team's play-by-play announcer. And that became my goal. I did set my mind to it. And even I am shocked that it actually happened that way, but it did.
1: Well, obviously, everybody around here is privileged that it did. It's a great pleasure, man, to have you on. Obviously, you and I worked together a long time, and I've certainly known you a lot longer than that. Really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us here on Cobb Life. Uh, we get to have this kind of fun every week.
2: Well, I really enjoy being here, and I appreciate the invite. Always a long-time friend and always will
1: be. That is Braves broadcaster Jim Powell, kind enough to spend some time with us on an extensive episode of Cobb Life this week. This is Cobb Life from the Marietta Daily Journal. I'm Brian Giffen with the BG Ad Group. We appreciate all of you joining us this week, and we will talk to you next week, everybody. So long.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cobb Life Sunday Podcast. Be sure to listen all week long for local news from the Marietta Daily Journal. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Please like, follow, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Glenn Drake, owner of Drake Realty and a local realtor for over 28 years in Cobb County. Cobb has always been a special place to me. I've lived here, raised children here, and built a business here. Right now, many of you have a dream. A dream to buy or sell or use real estate as a means of investing. Call the team that knows the lay of the land, Drake Realty. Turning dreams into reality since 1991. Visit us online at drakerealty.com.